As I was preparing to come back from my much appreciated leave, I was really anticipating what the text would be for the sermon when I came back. And I use the lectionary generally, and I use the gospel text often. And I was hoping for something, you know, uplifting, like I am the good shepherd. And I waited to check the lectionary until Monday. And this is what I was greeted with. Hey, Jesus, look how nice these buildings are and all these big stones. Incredible, huh? To which Jesus replies, all will be destroyed. No stone will be left on stone. Not exactly what I was looking for. I probably should have pivoted, but I didn't. So let's give this a shot. Well, this chapter in Mark is known affectionately as the little apocalypse. And frankly, I don't know about you, but generally I try to stay away from apocalypses in both actual and written form. I mean, have you read Revelation? It is bizarre. Generally, I'm glad that they kind of put it at the end. I don't go there that often. Mostly, though, I think in terms of Revelation, I don't like all the bad interpretations out there with people, of course, like Tim LaHaye and Kurt Cameron having made an industry from what I see as an overly literalistic interpretation about secret knowledge, giving hidden clues about future historical events. Small confession, when I was a baby Christian, I read five and a half left behind books before I learned that there was another way of reading Revelation and that for the majority of the history of the church, people did not read Revelation that way. Apocalypse can be hard to understand. One reason is because it's a foreign genre to us. This kind of writing was all the rage around the time of Jesus. We see this in Revelation. We see it in Daniel. There's lots of other books that have this sort of kind of writing. But for us, it's strange. It's a strange world. We don't know the rules of apocalypse. And as strange as it may sound, apocalypses were, in many ways, texts of hope. They're written for people who are suffering, who are oppressed, and it provided them with another vision of the world, a cosmic vision of the world where worldly power was turned on its head, where God's justice reigned and the vindication of the oppressed was assured. This was the power of apocalypse and why it was so popular. So years ago, when I was seeking license in the Brethren in Christ Church, part of that process involved filling out this long doctrinal questionnaire, which is way harder than the Mennonites did, but that's a whole other thing. But it was, it was like 40 pages. Well, there is something similar with, with Mennonite church, but really they just want to determine if I'm a heretic or not. And one of the questions, of course, was about my understanding of the end times. I always find these end time questions weird, but I answered something like this. I think an overfocus on the end times leads many to lose sight of this world. Our primary attention should be on serving God, following Jesus, participating in the kingdom in the present, having hope in the God of resurrection still, who will make all things new still knowing the importance of apocalypse for all the reasons that I said. Generally, this went over pretty well. There's a, usually like a group of five people that will write back and say, oh, we liked this about this. I wasn't a heretic, except for one person who was very not pleased with what I wrote. They insisted that I state clearly whether I believed in a post-millennial or pre-millennial rapture, or if I was an amillennialist, God forbid. My answer of of, I really don't care, 
was not sufficient. Now, in Mark's little apocalypse, Jesus does seem to care, but differently, I think, than it's been presented. He cares not so much about trying to uncode future events, but instead with speaking in realistic terms about what lies ahead for his friends and disciples, telling them to be prepared and still that God is with them through it all. We catch up with Jesus in Mark 13 as he is walking out of the temple, and one of his disciples comments on the architecture, something that was certainly not like what they would have seen in the fishing villages of Galilee. Then, without missing a beat, Jesus turns to his friends and says, these buildings will all be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. Well, Jesus, tell us how you really feel. What makes Jesus respond this way to such a seemingly innocent comment? Many see this as a condemnation of the temple and the temple system, and I understand where that reading comes from, but I actually don't think that's what's happening here. Certainly, Jesus has issues with Jerusalem authorities, but he is also a good Jewish boy who, through his gospels at least, taught people how to follow the law, who would have loved the temple for what it was. No, this is not a condemnation, but a lament. In Luke, it always comes back to Luke, right? But in Luke, Jesus laments here in this same spot after Jesus leaves the temple. And when Jesus is first marching on the city in the triumphal entry, there are crowds of people shouting Hosanna. But it says, once he saw Jerusalem, he began to weep. And why did he begin to weep? He started to say, if only you knew today, at this time, the things that lead to peace. But the time is coming when the enemies will storm and destroy you. No stone will be left on stone. Jesus here is lamenting the city that he loves. Despite the idea of many that Jesus is a wide-eyed optimist, Jesus here shows what a political realist he is. He does not march on Jerusalem expecting some political transformation. The kingdom of God will come in. Everything will be perfect. He can read the signs of the times. He knows the violence that is simmering among the people as they sit under the brutal imposition of so-called Roman peace. And when four of his friends ask him to say more, Jesus gives an honest picture of what is to come, a real picture in his mind of what is to come. Jesus knows that violence is the cycle of history, that the script has been played out in the same way since Cain onward. We know this cycle. We are heirs of this cycle. Nations rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom. Emperors and empires rise and fall. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Macedonians and Greeks, the Romans, the King, Mongol and Japanese empires, the Abbasid and Umayyad caliphate, the French, Spanish, and Portuguese colonial regimes, the British and American empires have and will crumble Jesus says, but that does not mean that this is the end. Be prepared. Many will come in my name, 
says Jesus. And indeed they did. Did you know that people calling themselves messiahs rose up all the time around the time of Jesus? In 66 CE, a Jewish war of independence began, which resulted in Rome destroying the temple. Not one stone left on stone besides that wailing wall. A few decades later, another revolt led by a man named Simon Bar Kokhba, who was called by his followers Messiah, led another revolt. And this time, the Romans destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem. By the way, when you come out of Mark 13, it's easy to see this as a condemnation of the temple, but notice it says buildings. We may be imagining all of Jerusalem. But then the entire city of Jerusalem is destroyed. Jesus doesn't need to see the future to uncode future events. He only needs to read the signs of the times. He knows what is coming. Many will come in my name, he says, calling us to war, but do not listen to them. Yet it is perhaps Jesus's lack of optimism and stark realism that makes this passage hard for so many other people. In a much different spirit, in 1899, you may know this, the magazine The Christian Oracle, caught up in the optimistic spirit of that time, the change into the 20th century, changed its name to The Christian Century, a magazine that I subscribe to. I really like it. But they changed the name of The Christian Century, stating, we believe that the coming century is to witness greater triumphs in Christianity than any previous century ever witnessed, right? The Christian century. And that it is to be more truly Christian than any of its predecessors. Their hope was, of course, in progress, believing that the kingdom was slowly dawning and that with a more rational and civilized humanity, it would emerge where wars would cease and technology would deliver us a new day of peace and reason. One article that year was simply entitled, Why the World is Getting Better. And then the 20th century happened. <laughs> it is from the opposite side of this same question that students, I think of one specific student just this semester, they have lamented and lament at the beginning of the 21st century, after studying the Gospel of Luke and Jesus's vision of justice and peace, um, at least as I see it and make them see, <laughs> that they think that the church should be making a difference. And I say that it does, but their question is, but why does it seem that the world is not getting any better? Coming through the 20th century, they ask that question and see that it has failed. And this is where I think we are right to tune into Jesus's realism. I believe the church does make a difference, speaking to and calling to account the spaces, the spaces that we inhabit, powers that be, with the message of the good news of God's love and justice and peace. But at the same time, Jesus does not speak of the church's mission in glowing terms as progressively civilizing and pacifying the world, right? This is kind of a colonial vision, by the way. But rather, he speaks to a sojourning people. In Mark 13, he speaks to a people on a journey, a people of peace, wayfaring strangers, you might say, a traveling through this world of war. Declaring the gospel of peace, good news for the poor, and inviting the world along 
in its sojourn. The church, Jesus's body, as salt in the world, yeast springing up in spaces of care and healing, it always sojourning. We, friends of Jesus, yes, this small ragtag group of people here and online, we walk the cruciform walk of Jesus. Not in some belief in, in progress, but because in Jesus, the God who embraced rejection is present among us, healing, forgiving, reconciling, and bringing hope. And this God calls us in turn to be this reconciliation and peace within the world. That's why we do it, because we serve that God on a journey with the wandering God, inhabiting spaces, as I said, of care, healing, love, and forgiveness. And not, of course, that we are to suffer. I don't believe that God's desire is that we suffer, though it may happen and may be inevitable, some of us less than others. But that we are to have and to give all that we have to peace and reconciliation. And on this journey, this God continues to be with us and provide for us. This is the important thing I think that Jesus is trying to get across in Mark 13, is that though these things will happen, and let us be realistic, that this God is journeying with you. When you go before governors and before synagogues, he says, the Holy Spirit will be guiding you. God provides. Jesus' words speak to each generation as we are born into a world built on violence. And we are called to journey the way of peace, to witness to that peace by God's spirit amid the powers of the world, especially we who live as citizens of the nation that is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, both exported and internalized in the domestic carceral state, violence, economic, and environmental. Jesus's little apocalypse hits us today not as a call to be conquering civilizers or end-time prognosticators, but to be faithful to that peace, to be people that are faithful to that call of peace, wherever it leads us, the peace that Jesus weeps over, that there is that faith lacking. We are to be people journeying as children of the wandering God, the same God who led Israel with a pillar of smoke by day, and with fire by night, this God provides for us and journeys with her people today. And that is the good news. And so we pray with the psalmist, protect us, God, you read in Psalm 16. Lead us into spaces of hope and healing, love and care, where you meet with us and we believe that your justice will be done. We take refuge in you. God, as you give us your spirit, give us a heart for your love and a hope for your justice. In our darkest nights, may we be guided by your fire as a people of peace, a people of resurrection. And on this journey, may you all know, and may I know, God's provision. Amen.